The scripture this morning is found in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. That's found on page 718 in the Pew Bible. Again, Mark 12, 28 through 34. Now, the setting of this is Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem, and he has been talking to a lot of different groups of people. Uh, The last ones were the Sadducees. So Mark 12, 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Our lives are filled with a confusion of choices. We encounter more options than we can possibly ever assess and assimilate. Every facet of our lives, even entertainment and recreation, is is complicated by an ever-widening array of choices delivered at a frantic pace. Consider this. There are more than 800,000 apps in the Apple App Store. There are 240-plus selections on the Cheesecake Factory menu. (laughs) It's overwhelming. And that does not include, by the way, lunch or brunch specials. The number of different ways that Starbucks can serve a cup of coffee is 19,000 different ways. There are 135 mascaras, 437 lotions, and 1,992 fragrances at Sephora.com. In 1980, the typical credit card contract was about 400 words long. Today, many are 20,000 words long. One company deliberately buried a clause in its end-user license agreement, offering $1,000 to the first person who mailed the company at a certain uh, email address. Do you know how long it took for someone to see it and claim that money? It took five months and 3,000 sales later. 
Our lives are filled with a confusion of choices. Consider the choices at your typical American supermarket. There are 27 different varieties of Crest toothpaste. There are 53 varieties of Campbell's condensed soup. If you go to buy some Cheerios, you can choose from original, honey nut, honey nut medley crunch, chocolate, banana nut, frosted, multi-grain, multi-grain peanut butter, just to name a few. I mean, it's a little wonder that that a 2014 Consumers Report survey of nearly 3,000 shoppers found that 36% said that they were overwhelmed by the information they had to process to make a buying decision. That is why my wife hesitates to send me off by myself to pick up an item for her while we're walking around in Walmart. She eventually has to come to my rescue. Several minutes later, she finds me standing in the aisle doing this. You can relate, I can tell. And you know what? We sometimes struggle in our spiritual lives with a similar problem. We have so many duties and and responsibilities and obligations. What do we do? How shall we live? What does it mean to be a Christian? We have lots of sermons and lots of Bible studies and lots of activities. So many choices. So many choices. It's so easy to lose our way along the way. What matters most? What does it all boil down to? Well, thankfully, there was a man who asked Jesus that question while he walked on this earth. And thankfully, we have that recorded for us in God's revelation to us in the Gospels. It's in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, the passage that that Betsy so beautifully just read for us, that it becomes clear as to what ought to be our number one priority and what it is that God wants from us more than anything else. Now, in case you haven't been with us over the last several months, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Mark, following Jesus in his day in order to surface marks of a disciple uh, that apply to us in our fast-paced world in which we live today. This morning, I draw your attention to Mark chapter 12. The scene is Jesus interacting with people who have come with questions for Jesus to answer. Now, we need to, to, to be mindful, however, that this question and answer time that was kind of thrown onto Jesus was filled with hypocrisy and pretenses. It was a charade, really, as the Sanhedrin made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law who were also Pharisees. They wanted Jesus dead and out of the way because Jesus was growing in popularity. And since there were crowds of people following Jesus, they couldn't just wander in and and kill Jesus on the spot because then they'd have even a worse problem on their hands as the crowd would turn on them. So their goal was to find a way to get people to turn against Jesus. And so they devised this plan of trying to discredit Jesus publicly through the asking of questions. And so the Sanhedrin sent some Pharisees with a question about paying taxes to Caesar. 
Look back at verse 13 with me before we look at this passage. Verse 13 of chapter 12. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus, grab this, to catch him in his words. Well, their efforts to trap Jesus failed miserably. Strike one. The Sanhedrin then sent out the the Sadducees to ask Jesus about the resurrection. Again, this was for the purpose of trapping Jesus, for they didn't even believe in the resurrection. Verse 24, grab this, verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? I mean, slam! The Sadducees are now silenced. Their efforts to trap Jesus failed miserably again. Strike two. The Sanhedrin regroup. This time they send an expert in the law, a scribe we call him, or a teacher of the law, the NIV says. And Mark doesn't inform us of this, but in Matthew's account of this same story, uh, he says in Matthew 22, 35, you can look at it later, that, that this teacher of the law came to test Jesus, to test Jesus. Here we go again. Will this be a swing and a miss also? I think you know the answer. Now, while it is true that this teacher of the law is just another pawn in the Sanhedrin's game, I tend to think that this teacher of the law has a genuine interest in knowing this answer. I believe that this teacher of the law comes with some objectivity and some sincerity. And I think you'll see why I sense that as we walk through this together. Well, let's look at the passage. The passage says, Mark 12, verse 28. Please follow along if you have your Bibles. Matthew 12, Mark 12, verse 28. says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, Notice, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, Of all the commandments which is the most important. He wanted to know what matters most. What is the most important? Now, the teachers of the law, they they just love to discuss the law. They were zealous for the law. And the Pharisees took the whole Old Testament and their many interpretations of it, And they added all their traditions that sprang up around it. And all of that became their law. They had 613 laws. Now, by the way, they decided there were 613 laws because there were 613 letters in the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. I mean, it's kind of silly, but that's the nonsense they spent their time on. And of the 613 commands, there were 248 positive commands and 365, 365 negative commands. 365, you could have a don't a day. Perfect. Now, I realize that some of this is more information than you may care to know, but it puts this question in some type of framework. And since no one can actually keep 613 laws, even the Pharisees knew that. 
The teachers of the law would, would get, go, gather around and discuss and determine the weightier, the, the heavier, the more important laws that they could try and keep, and then the lighter and, and, and the, the less weighty ones over here that maybe they can't keep, and they kind of want to divide it. Prompt this question. That's what gets this question going. Now, here lies one of the problems of legalism. If you're going to try and earn your way into heaven by following rules, you know you aren't perfect. Your heart knows it. Your conscience knows it. Your spouse knows it. Your children know it. Your friends know it. Everybody knows it. And so you're, you're left with trying to find a few that you can keep, and hopefully that will be enough to satisfy God. Well, this teacher wants to know then how this great teacher standing here, this rabbi named Jesus, would say is the one commandment to keep. Now, the trap in this question is to get Jesus to say something that is against Moses, for then the people would be more likely to turn from Jesus. They were hoping that Jesus would elevate himself above Moses and put his teaching above the law of Moses. Then people would see him as this heretic and this blasphemer and turn against him. That was the reason for such a question as this. So the teacher of the law comes and he wants Jesus to give him the number one law. Jesus quotes from the Shema and saying, verse 29, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And every Jew around Jesus right now would be mouthing these words right along with Jesus as he was saying this. They knew these words. The Jews were required to recite those words twice a day. Jesus continues, verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And Jesus, as you would expect, answers perfectly and absolutely accurately. His answer would even be in the neighborhood for which the Sadducees and the Pharisees could agree. Jesus brilliantly answers from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. He answers the first part from the book of Deuteronomy, and then he answers the second part in verse 31 from the book of Leviticus. Jesus really gives this man more than he asked for. He was asked what the greatest commandment is, and he answers with two commandments. Now, if we can take a step back for just a moment, we can appreciate this man's question. This is not too far removed from life today. We have filled the Christian life, loved ones, with all kinds of activities and good stuff that we too should ask, what matters most? Can someone boil it down for me, please? I'm on this spiritual merry-go-round, and I can't seem to get off. It would do us well to pause and ask, what matters the most, Lord? What do you want from me more than anything else? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the confusion of choices. Where does your time to love and know the Lord fit in? As Blackaby puts it, everything in your Christian life depends on the quality of your, relo- of your love relationship to God. If that's not right, nothing will be right. What is this love that moves it to the greatest priority? Well, I want to give you three aspects of love we are called to. It is a way in which we can measure our growth and our progress as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because frankly, sometimes we're measuring it with the wrong thing. Let us put our lives up against this. Three aspects of love we're called to. First aspect, it is, it is all-encompassing. It is all-encompassing. There is only one God, and therefore we can give him all of our love. The supreme, most comprehensive responsibility of all people is to love that one God for who he is and for what he has done. That is why that singular word, that three-letter word, all, in verse 30, is so significant. All. There are four of them. It's quite demanding. Our love is to be with all our hearts and with all our soul and with all our minds. And Jesus adds one more aspect to what is written in Deuteronomy and saying it is to be with all our strength. Let's grab the allness of this statement. Now he speaks of heart, and he speaks of soul, he speaks of mind, he speaks of strength. And Jesus kind of stacks up these words, and in some ways they even overlap. And while it may be of of some interest to to break them down, in other words, ask what is meant by the heart, and what is meant by the soul, what is meant by the mind, what is meant by the strength. I mean, there might be some value in doing that, but for my purposes this morning, I don't think it's necessary in understanding Jesus' intention. It all sometimes just becomes some great notes. We go, wow, that's neat. That's heart, that's soul. Listen, Jesus' point here is that every fiber of our being, every bit of what we have, is to be given in love for God. That's his point. At the core of our being with our emotions and our understanding and our will and and our resolve and, and with all of our energy and our effort, love him. To break it down might be helpful, but the main point Jesus is getting across is that this love for God is an all-consuming, all-encompassing love. As William Barclay summarizes, he says, Our love for God is a love that dominates our emotions, it directs our thoughts, and is the dynamic of all our actions. I stop there and I say, is that true for me? John Piper puts it this way. He says, take all of your longings and focus it on God until he satisfies it completely. Take all of your longings and focus it on God until he satisfies it completely. Is that the direction you are moving? It is what matters most. Don't miss that it is all. 
Are you giving all you have to loving God? It's not a portion. It's not a tithe of what you have. It is all you have. It's not a, to be a segment of your life that you kind of assign that this is God's over here. All of it is about God. There is no compartment in your life, believer, that is about you. Every aspect of your life and my life is an opportunity to love God there. That means you love God with the work you do. That means you love God in your studies. That means you love God when you're playing sports. That means you love God when you enter to worship each week. That means you love God when you're driving in the car or you're facing that trial or you get into that disagreement or or you're carrying out that tedious task. Do you, do I love God with the totality of our being? How do we measure whether or not we're making progress in individuals, as individuals, and, and as a church? Are we growing in our love for God? Is what we're doing out of love for God? Should we, not, we should not be just doing things as an end in themselves. We're here to grow in loving God. Hopefully that's why you got up this morning. Are you a lover of God? What do you love? What would others say you love? What would those who know you best say you love? You might say, well, you know, they they love their house. They love their comfort. (laughs) They love their kids. They love their country. They love their car. They love the Red Sox. Sorry, I had to get that in there. Sorry. Not speaking of you, of course. But would they say he or she loves God? Is he our first love? Do you love God more than your kids? Do you love God more than your ministry? Do you love God more than your sin? Do you love God more than than getting your own way? Do you love God more than what you're studying? Do you love God more than the praise of others? Do you love God more than some good thing in your life that kind of has a way of just slipping onto your idol shelf? The Lord, your God, the Lord is one. Love Him. You know what that means? Very practically. It means that we guard our heart against other loves trying to take the place of God. It means we are caring for our soul. It means that we become more aware of what we're feeding our minds with. It means we are giving effort to growing our relationship with him. We're being intentional about it. I've said before, any relationship left to itself will drift. Are we giving the effort it needs? It is all-encompassing. Not only is it all-encompassing, secondly, it is internal. It is internal. Notice the teacher of the law's reply in verse 32. I love this. He says, well said, teacher. I like Jesus need to have his affirmation. 
Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. In other words, it's kind of hard to argue with your answer. Swing and a miss. Strike three. A third trap fails miserably. And that is why when all is said and done, we find these words at the end of verse 34. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I smile every time I see that. Now, there's something rather interesting in the teacher of the law's answer here that I just want to draw our attention to. It's why I think that while he did come to test Jesus to trap him, there was some sincerity and objectivity in his asking. Listen to what he says, verse 33. Verse 33. To love him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He had something. Jesus didn't say that part. He's getting it. Here they are standing in the temple where sacrifices and and burnt offerings are taking place constantly around them, day and night, every day. And here they are in Passover week where there are priests all over the place. The sacrificial system is at its peak. This is what makes these words so loaded, so potent. This teacher of the law says, in essence, loving God and loving others is more important than all of this that's going on here in this temple. It's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus commends the man for his answer, he says at the beginning of verse 34, and he saw that he had answered wisely. Why is this such a wise answer? Because this man was starting to get it, that to love God is not about the externals. It is an internal matter. I have to be honest with you. Somewhere along the way, growing up Christian, I missed this. I'm not blaming the church I'm not blaming the the wonderful Christian home I had the privilege to grow up in. But for years, I tried to do the obedience thing without this love piece. I remember even going to youth rallies and and teen retreats that called me to surrender this and and to get rid of that and, and to obey here and to obey there. But I missed what drove that obedience. It is love for God. This is what drives our obedience. Obedience to God is an internal matter. This love for God is to be the driver behind all we do. We obey because we love God. We serve because we love God. We pray because we love God. We hate sin because we love God. We share the good news of Christ because we love God. We worship on Sunday morning Because we love God. We teach because we love God. What matters most in the Christian life, we are called to love God with everything we have. Knowing this is critical to to, to how you live your life. Because among the myriad of choices, what does it all boil down to? Loving God. An all-encompassing internal love. We can do all these outward things and even know what God wants more than anything else and yet miss internalizing it by a few inches. Because even though this man answered wisely and he was close to the kingdom of God, he wasn't close enough for Jesus says here, you are not far from the kingdom of God in the middle of verse 34. Verse 34. 
You are not far from the kingdom of God. John Wesley grew up in a home where he was taught regularly the things of God by his mother. He became an ordained minister at a young age. He met with a group of men for prayer on a weekly basis that became known as the Holy Club. He helped the poor. He helped the sick. He visited prisons. He even accepted an invitation to become a missionary to the American Indians. He would set aside an hour a day for personal prayer and reflection. He he fasted twice a week and, and he set out to conquer every personal sin. Then one morning... Something happened that Wesley would never forget. He opened up his Bible haphazardly and his eyes fell on this verse. You are not far from the kingdom of God. He had never made that decision before for Christ. And he went to his bed that night crossing this invisible line into the kingdom of God. But for 35 years of his life, Wesley learned the scriptures. He did many things for God as an unconverted man. For 35 years, it could be said of Wesley that he was not far from the kingdom of God. Listen. It is possible to grow up in a Christian home, to go to church, to have godly parents, to go to Christian camp, to recite memory verses, and it be said you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, that scares me to think that's true. It is possible to sit under the teaching of God's word, to attend Bible studies, to hang out with God's people, and it be said, you are not far from the kingdom of God because close is not close enough. It's not enough to know this. It's not enough to know you're to love God or or to even desire and, and try to love God. There needs to be trust in him as our savior. We can't just try to love God on our own. We can't just have all the right information and know about these things. We need a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be reconciled to God through Christ. We need the power of the gospel to change us and give us a new heart so that we can love God. We love because he first loved us. Being on the one-yard line is close, but not close enough. Do you need to act on that today? I ask you, are you going in the right direction? You know, kind of like the two guys who were traveling down the interstate, and one of them says, hey, aren't we going in the wrong direction? And the other said, yeah, but we're making such good time, I hate to turn around. <laughs> it doesn't matter how fast you're going. It doesn't matter if it's the wrong direction. It matters the direction you're heading. Do you need to turn around? Is today the day? It's been said, convictions not acted on die. Truths not followed fade. Lingering can become a habit. And we can either go in or go further away. And this man is on the one-yard line. And we don't know if he ever made it into the end zone. Are you near but not in? Have you internalized this? 
I need to give you the third aspect of this love we're called to. It is, it is measurable. It is measurable. It's all-encompassing. It is internal. It is measurable. Loving God with our entire being is more important than all the activities without that love. But, you want, but we need to see here, it is a double love. For Jesus attached to this command of loving God, the love we are to have for others, he says the second is like this. Verse 31. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And Jesus, in giving this answer, summed up the whole of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are about what? Loving God and our relationship vertically to God. The last six commandments have to do with our relationships with others. This is the genius of our Savior's answer. And these two commands, he has said it all. It boils down to love God, love others. We're to live out a double love. That's the mark of a disciple. How do we measure our love for God? We love others. A Peanuts cartoon shows Lucy standing with her arms folded and a stern expression on her face. And Charlie Brown pleads with her, Lucy, you, must be, you, you need to be more loving. The world, world really needs love. You have to let yourself love to make this world a better place. And Lucy angrily swirls around, knocks Charlie Brown to the ground. She stands over him and screams at him, Look, blockhead, the world I love, it's people I can't stand. <laughs> you know the feeling. Loving the world isn't that difficult. Loving the people around us is. Our Christian faith must move us to loving God more, but that has to lead us to loving others. For 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. 1 John 5.1 says, Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. A form of Christianity that does not move in the direction of loving others is selfish and mistaken. The overflow of our love for God is love for others. This is double love. Both commands are necessary. Both are inseparable like two wings on a plane. You need both. So how do we measure progress in our lives? How do we know we're going in the right direction? How many church activities I'm involved in? My growing theological knowledge? I'm struggling less with temptation? Jesus says, do you love me? And feed my sheep. Do you love me? And care for each other. Do you love me? Jesus asks. Yes, I do. Then honor others. Do you love me? Jesus presses. I do, Lord. Then forgive that person who made a thoughtless remark about you in front of others. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Then look past that irritating voice or bad habit. Do you love me? Jesus asks. And we go, yes. 
that carry that person's burden, be devoted to one another, submit to one another, serve one another by stooping to love. You see, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. In all of our activities, and I've done a check on my own life on this, and I'll continue, I need to. In all of our activities, in all of our serving, and all of the things we do in the Christian life, what matters the most? Love God, love others. It is living the double love that God wants. You see, without love, all it is, it's just noise. The Apostle Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am only resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I couldn't help myself but think of this. But growing up, there was this crazy game show known as the gong show. And I'm really dating myself here. Amateur talent would perform before a panel of critics. And we have a lot of reality shows like that now. The panelists would rate the individual performers on their talent, but every so often when the performance was really, really bad, the audience would yell, gong him, gong him. And there was this big gong on the stage. And it just became unbearable to watch. One of the panelists would take this giant mallet and he would whack the gong with it and he'd gong. It meant the performance was just too painful to continue to listen to. It was the ultimate statement of ridicule. Paul said, It is possible for a believer to possess certain spiritual gifts, but if that person served without love towards others, he is only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. That's all it is, noise. It is possible for churches to do ministry. It is possible for churches to do a lot of good activities, to even perform well in a number of areas, yet still lack love. I'm not saying that's the case here. I'm saying let's do a check on it. You can do all kinds of things without loving. And when we fail to show love, we are only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What difference does it make? Jesus said, By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Our love for others is what? It is the proof that his love has invaded our lives. It is a love that gives us credibility to the outside community. That's how important it is. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you what? Have a lot going on? If you're running here and everywhere, you're trying to keep a schedule, you have an agenda to fill, none of those. If you love one another, folks, that is the proof. That is the proof of God's love and invaded ours and changes us. That's it. Listen to the words of this song.